1: And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira. Sort of. I don't know. I'm traveling this week.
2: She's there. I am
1: in a hotel room. This is budget. This is keep, budget keep it. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah, this is keep it under the budget. Keep it low. <laughs> keep it low cost.
3: I'm Lewis Fertel, and I just want to say... R.I.P. Tawny Katane, the girl from the Whitesnake video. Mm -hmm. Girl who? An era of music I was thinking about because Ben Fold said the late 80s was the worst time for pop music ever. Mm. And I just want to say about hair metal bands, quickly, before Aida introduces herself, (laughs) that hair metal would not have been so bad if there were three hair metal bands, except there were 100. (laughs) And then they started being named things like Vixen and Cinderella, and it, it was just too much. So I'm sympathetic towards hair metal, ultimately, is what I want to say. And now we've got that Tommy and Pamela Anderson Lee movie coming out, so there's going to be a whole new wave of sympathy towards them. Anyway, Aida, introduce yourself.
2: Hello, I am Tommy Lee. Um, (laughs) Nice to be here. Um, My name is Aida Osman, and we were actually talking about this kind of a little bit prior, but there was a phase in my life where I was so obsessed with Def Leppard. It was a weak and feeble attempt to irritate my boyfriend who loved like Pink Floyd and Mm. just classic rock Mm. music. And I was like, you know what? Pour some sugar on me. You know what? Mm. They're albums that nobody listened to that came out in like 96. That's what I like.
1: I feel like I do a deep dive every time I read a new Chuck Klosterman book because that's all he ever writes about. <laughs> um, and I definitely did become a Van Halen fan.
3: Oh, sure.
2: Girl, you better. Yeah. You better. But
1: the, but that's like that's like high class.
3: No, I, I feel like Van Halen and Def Leppard are the Yale of this type of music, you know?
1: Yeah. But there's definitely people with names like come drizzle <laughs> i feel like the, the the band names got out of control
2: well they're grammy nominated so don't be,
1: don't be disrespectful you know <laughs> um shout out to tawny katane though especially for people who don't know if they remember her she was the one who humped the car in that video uh mm. and set the stage of course, for cameron diaz to do that of course in the counselor
3: yes oh car humping (laughs) as a pop cultural phenomenon should be respected um i can't think of any other examples but okay great
2: i can i can think true life i'm in love with my car really paved the way for the the pansexual queens we feel so represented uh not
3: true
1: life
2: true life was that show
3: (laughs) i did watch probably every episode of that
2: show Mm, Um, I learned so much about culture that I needed to know at eight. (laughs) That's a show
1: that I feel like they could reboot on MTV. But I also it would probably be Paramount Plus now. I don't know. Who watches MTV?
2: Well, also it was about like getting access to those people and those unique lifestyles. But now they have a TikTok with six million followers where they just eat soap.
3: Yeah. So. Right. You don't have to find these people anymore. They are well found. Yeah.
1: Well, it's like yeah. the whole purpose of like MTV's fanatic too was to find like the totally. wildest fan of like Britney or Destiny's Child, and now those people are in your mentions telling you to die. <laughs>
3: No, imagine imagine needing to locate a loud
1: fan. Like, nothing could be less rare.
2: Where are the zealots? They're so quiet.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, speaking of fans... Lewis, you are a Jeopardy! super fan and contestant. I I feel like we can't really call you a super fan. You've been on the show. Right. You've been memed from the show. Right, right. You are the show. Yes. Fuck (laughs) Trebek. Fuck Trebek. Jeopardy! is Lewis Vertel.
3: I feel the same way, delusionally. Um, (laughs) No, my only relationship to TikTok is someone will send me a link to my old gif being put in some new TikTok or whatever. And then I read the comments and people will say kind things about keep it. And then some straight guy will say something like full body cringe
1: <laughs> at my moment. So that's exciting. So-
3: <laughs> oh Ooh, goodness. I
1: saw a gay person snap their fingers. Right. What could be worse? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. But I bring up Jeopardy because you interviewed Buzzy Cohen today.
3: Yes. Buzzy Cohen, who is a former, nine-time champion uh f- he uh won a big tournament and now he is hosting the next tournament of champions he's the next in the long list of uh replacement hosts they've had and he is also a friend of mine and uh, a complete doll and you would probably recognize him if you saw him he has very signature glasses kind of a sexy Wears
1: waldo vibe if you will mm. okay i'm so proud of you Lewis. your first interview solo Oh, yeah. yeah on I'm, Keep It, at she's least. She's
2: going rogue.
3: Yeah. Oh, this, is this a backdoor pilot? Yeah. Am I being shady right now? Who knows? Look for me on a and E's.
1: Lewis interviews game show host. Yeah, right. Fascinating. That's the backdoor pilot that we're setting up here.
3: Oh, God. Okay. I mean, you think you're kidding, but I... That's my vocation in life. I would rather just do that. Okay, great.
2: (laughs) Keep it as a stepping stone to that. I understand. But you have your proof of concept now. Go off, girl.
3: Oh, thanks. I'm all prepared for my meeting. Yes. Mm.
1: Also this week, we're going to talk about how technology is evil. Oh, Mm -hmm. Whether it be through Clubhouse uh, and... Twitter spaces, whatever the fuck those are. I'm still banned. Don't know what they are. (laughs)
3: Right. I'll describe them to you.
1: And Elon Musk.
2: Yeah, the android.
1: Who hosted SNL this week. Oh, you
3: mean the next Carol Burnett? (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Hosted is a very generous term, Ira. Okay. Uh, For, For what Elon did on that stage.
1: Well, we'll get into all of that when we're back. Over the weekend, Oscar nominee and former Keep It guest and um, the Joker himself, uh, (laughs) Lakeith Stanfield, had to apologize for moderating a chat room that took a turn for the anti-Semitic. Oprah, Malcolm Gladwell, MC Hammer, Ashton Kutcher, Scooter Braun, Kevin Hart, Tiffany Haddish, Jared Leto, and Drake have all flocked to the platform recently to connect with fans. So what is Clubhouse (laughs) and why does Silicon Valley care? And more importantly why do so many black um, startup entrepreneurs that I know care mm-hmm. and are constantly inviting me to their talks?
2: Yeah, w- why? I, first of all, I'm so sick of ignoring Clubhouse notifications. And <laughs> and goodness gracious, who has that much to talk about as we literally host a podcast? Who has that much conversation to have? <laughs> Clubhouse is where, where um, waning black celebrities trying to Recreate their careers. It is a place where people have moan rooms where they decide to give out awards for who has the best moan. It's a scholastic, no. Wait, you
3: you need a... to stop right there.
2: <laughs> okay.
3: Moan rooms need to be explained once once moan more rooms. to me because I had to start and you know I'm like I'm sitting here wizened with my cane as she explains these things to me. <laughs> but yeah. a moan room is a real thing and it's about recreating orgasms for other people who in a pose on FX-like way, judge the moans, and give you scores.
2: Yep, exactly. That's exactly right. And weirdly enough, because we are just about to talk about it, the first time I heard very questionable news about Clubhouse, it was when Lakeith was participating in a moan room on Clubhouse. You'd think he would just get off the app at this point, but no.
3: <laughs> Wait, as in he was one of the moaners himself? Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Oscar nominee Lakeith Stanfield. <laughs> <laughs> yes. First of all, I've,
3: t- I've trained you to talk like me at certain situations now. You just, I was like, I was about to say Oscar nominee Lakeith Stanfield.
2: And, uh, yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's it. Uh, and
1: I wonder why he hasn't deleted it too.
2: Questionable app. I see you're on
1: it. I, I am. I am on it, but I joined when it first launched. So it's basically like this exclusive app. You know, sort of like Raya, which we were talking about last week. Uh, But it's a place where you can sort of be in rooms and you chat via voice instead of typing. Uh, I first signed up for it because I was invited um, through a friend. And it was still the part of the pandemic where something like this was fun. Mm. Where, like, Mm -hmm. you're sitting at home and you're not doing anything. So it makes sense that you would be on an app having conversations. I do not have any interest in sitting at home, having conversations on an app with random strangers. I already do it with (laughs) you (laughs) too. Right.
2: It's emotionally
1: draining and painful, right? Yeah. Yes. And, but some people love doing it with strangers and they love getting into arguments with strangers, just uh, like they do in Twitter threads. mm. But you're doing it with voice now. And, um, a lot of people like, you know, I like was joking about black entrepreneurs, but not really just because like, The people that you know, black or white, the the people you know who are like very much the um, I should be a person who gives like self-help or like they um, Mm -hmm. have sort of like a um, job in PR or marketing or um, Mm -hmm. banking. And they have sort of taken it upon themselves to be sort of like a guru who can shell out advice to people. Uh, Is basically everyone who wishes that they had a TED Talk. They can schedule... A clubhouse sort of room and then they have conversations with people so it's like you're going to a seminar or a meeting but from your own home yeah unfortunately I don't really know the vetting process where some of these people uh, don't know their qualifications and a lot of people are in there Oh, you
2: have to just be able to speak
1: yeah and a lot of people are in there talking about like the TV industry and stuff and I'm like I, where do you work
2: and we don't know you <laughs> And girl, we never heard of you. The thing is also to what you're saying, Ira, like this was when I joined, it was a really cool place for me and my friends that had all been scattered around the United States to come together and talk during the pandemic. It's really difficult Mm -hmm. to talk to strangers on there because like, yeah, anyone can speak, anyone can do whatever. We were hosting like DJ sets or sharing beats with each other or doing freestyle challenges. Um, I'm sure nobody will be surprised all the many ways i can rhyme words with Gucci. <laughs> moving on <laughs> oh
1: you I, I would love you to hit us with the gucci
2: gucci gucci <laughs> sometimes you can like mix it like you could be like i got yes. on versucci and you like you know yes. what i'm talking about we're, uh-huh. we're
1: not shocked because aside <laughs> our very own um tv star slash rapper aida oh goodness congrats on that by the way
3: oh yes we should talk about that uh, aida is the lead of a television series in which she originally intended,
1: I believe, just to write for.
2: Just to write for. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm Produced very by excited. Issa Ray
1: and the City Girls, so she knows I'm gonna be on set.
2: Y'all are coming to Miami looking we for are, Carisha. Okay. <laughs> I really Keep hope it. Carisha and we are Miami. still friends. for like months (laughs) Lewis Lewis, oh I can't wait to get Lewis drunk on a yacht someday
3: (laughs) oh my god can't you just just picture me with my my cufflinks I'm so
1: excited yeah Yeah. (laughs) listen keep it will end up a true crime investigation podcast once we all turn into (laughs) coke dealers
2: Yeah, And murder
1: people.
3: Got to make this money somehow.
2: Lewis Lewis and his dreadlocks just wandering Broward (laughs) County.
3: (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, please, God, Uh, no.
2: Well, does anyone remember when I had an unfounded level of knowledge about NFTs? Sure, right. (laughs) Girl, that was me regurgitating Clubhouse information. There are a couple uses to Clubhouse, especially when it comes to like technological advances. It's loved in the Silicon Valley world because it was created in that world, first of all, as for mm-hmm. every app. Duh, Aida. But it's really widely popularized there. And secondly, because it has been the place to go for like NFT launch parties, NFT trading parties, and for just like dissemination of information about NFTs. So Homegirl got some uses, just one. <laughs> My question about Clubhouse is,
3: though you're saying it's like a seminar, so you show up to listen to one person, but it's still a conversation overall. Mm-hmm. Sometimes
1: it's more than one person too, having yeah. conversations. Like some multiple people can host a room. Got it. Uh, and then there's multiple speakers Some people can chime in and um, some people just remain silent. My problem with it, too, is that much like all social media, it recreates some of the worst aspects of humanity. Sure. Particularly men. Yeah. Uh, And so many of the rooms that I've been in sort of have, like, men talking over women or being like, come on, come on, come on. You know, like, um, (laughs) let let, let the sister speak, you know, let the sister speak, you know, or people saying misogynistic shit. And then, of course. This room that um, got news this past weekend, uh, a room that turned like hella anti-Semitic, mm-hmm. because of course people tweet garbage shit. And now they're just gonna like say garbage shit in Clubhouse. But what's wilder to me is that Clubhouse, we know who you are. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, so it's 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 creating sort of the like. I think people have gotten so emboldened on Twitter now they're in a space where it's like they're not even talking through, like, numbers or fake avatars, right? They're just spouting wild shit where you can see their face and name.
2: Exactly. Aida
3: was talking earlier about how, so, Lakeith is hosting this room. Do you think he then didn't anticipate any of these comments would occur? Or he was sort of anticipated? Like, how culpable is he?
2: Well, there's a particular choreography to joining a a clubhouse room. So, essentially, what's going on is Lakeith was made moderator the moment he entered the room, because that's what happens with celebrities. You just Mm. get positions of power. And of course, this power is just getting to be floated to the top of the chat room. But it's enough to make it look like you are heading it up and you're facilitating the conversation. To me, Lakeith has a small amount of culpability. Mm. I think at a certain point, the fact that we recognize you were in a anti-Semitic room means you should have left when the anti-Semitic comments started. There shouldn't have been any like conflation of the situation. But it's not like Lakeith said anything anti-Semitic. Other people in the room said he didn't say anything anti-Semitic and it was just that he was there. Um, and then there's also the weird crossover of the Farrakhan world and anti-Semitism and it was a Farrakhan room.
3: Ah, okay. Well, I mean, Louis Farrakhan is the
1: worst. So <laughs> <laughs> there we go. But
2: I was like, whoa, whoa there now. No, I'm where I'm on board.
1: <laughs> yeah. Should I call this episode Louis Farrakhan hartley Wait?
3: Oh, that's cute. But then people will think, i'm also named lewis so that yeah. will get that will get dicey for the listeners i think
1: mm-hmm. well you are lewis farrakhan
3: i have a distinct feeling i'm not i'm closer to like lewis Pasteur than i am him yeah.
2: <laughs> what if it's called lewis farrakhan interview
3: buzzy cohen yeah right
2: <laughs> yeah. football
3: in here who by the way is jewish so that really comes off wrong yeah
2: He's throwing things at the wall seeing what sticks
1: But the thing about Clubhouse that's really keeping it going is the fact that it's like staying invite only. Like it's usage has gone down, but now they've gone to Android and they're still doing the invite only thing because they need the allure of FOMO, right? It needs to be like some people still can't get in.
3: Oh, interesting. So there's a Raya aspect to this. Yeah, Yeah.
1: You still
2: have
3: to be invited. Mm,
2: And to our listeners, I just want to reiterate between last week's Riot Talk and today's Clubhouse Talk, you guys are missing absolutely nothing. (laughs) It is a hellscape in both abs. You don't want to be there. But also, if you want to check Clubhouse out, I think I have like six or seven invites. So DM me.
1: (laughs) i probably got so many
3: invites.
2: Mm -hmm. Come on.
3: Some people in a Clubhouse are just there to listen, like literally not there to talk, right? Yeah.
2: The large majority.
3: Yeah. Okay, great. So people have such a high tolerance for listening to other people, e- even like on podcasts. I'm surprised the human race, which is so, um, you know, we're so attention deficit um, E these days. But people really can, in a multitask kind of way, listen to a hundred voices at once or just keep listening to people talking. So in a way, I'm proud of humanity for finding <laughs> an oral way to tolerate others.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of become a cure-all to loneliness,
3: yeah, uh, Shakira taught us that. Oh, uh, Oral Fiacion Volumes 1, 2, and hopefully 3 through 8 soon.
1: Yes. Uh, this is also a Twitter thing now, too, right? Because, explain, have any of you been a part of Twitter Spaces yet?
2: Yes, just to see, just to see. It's the same thing as, like, Snapchat's coming to prominence and then Instagram stories popping up out of nowhere. So Twitter Spaces is the response to Clubhouse.
3: Mm-hmm. I will get the notification saying that somebody I follow, we'll, we'll say it's someone in the film Twitter universe, is in, doing a Twitter space. And then I'm immediately overwhelmed because I can't, I don't in that moment, whatever time of day it is, have it in me to have that intense a conversation about mm-hmm. Paul Mazursky or Fellini or whomever. So I just feel like people who can readily jump into a space are
1: dangerous.
2: shape-shifting psychopaths. Yeah,
1: correct. Yes, mm-hmm. I would say this as a conversationalists. The three of us, you know, are definitely like people who talk every week, um, obviously. And um, we're definitely people who can hold up a conversation at a party or something, right? Like if someone's talking about a movie, someone's talking about an actor, you know, someone's talking about politics, we can jump in. But the thing that I loved about Twitter, RIP, or any other place of social media that we use, you can sort of join in the conversation whenever you want, right? Mm -hmm. Like if someone's typing about something then you can respond later um or you know just sort of read it whatever if you're a part of like yeah these twitter spaces or clubhouse thing like you have to be on for this conversation like immediately and um sometimes i'm just not vibing with that especially not if i'm sitting at home right if i'm sitting at home like i don't want to be doing this especially now that we've reached almost the tail end of like um, our lockdowns um, and restrictions um, in Los Angeles, right? Because when we start going back to our regular lives, if I'm sitting at home, that means I am sitting at home to relax. Totally. Not ar- not argue with some people's voices in Clubhouse.
3: That It reminds me of what I hate about Zoom, which is you use it thinking, oh, it's going to be an effective way to feel like I'm socializing in a room with people. But in a way, it's almost worse than not socializing at all because it's frustrating and impersonal and... Um, a barrage in certain ways. And it feels like Clubhouse is sort of similar. Like, oh, here I am connecting with people. Oh, no, wait, I'm actually just getting like 70 radio signals from the entire universe and they're all like hyper punditing at me now. Mm.
2: The culture I found to be really uninviting because the types of people who want to just give speeches to random strangers that they interact with them immediately. Oh my God, I'm describing us. <laughs> it's like very, it's, it's very concerning in the way that they don't allow people to speak. They, they, like Ira was saying, speak over you. It's difficult to get on stage, which is technically the place where you go, where you're allowed to have conversations because not everyone is allowed to speak. It's mm. clubhouse is an eerie place. And also what I don't like about clubhouse is it's still in, it's like very, it's, it's in its baby phase of coding and look. And there's, Eerie ways to use the app that the the people have created to communicate with one another. Like, we can't share photos on the app, so there's this thing called PTRing, where you pull to refresh, where you change your actual avatar photos so that you can converse in photos. And there will be games on there, joke games, meme games. That's eerie. Another eerie thing is muting and unmuting yourself to clap. <laughs> terrifying when you see it like you just see the microphone app go on and off and on and off and that is clapping
3: oh i do not want to hear clapping I just, uh. <laughs> the only clapping i
2: enjoy is watching vanna <laughs> clapping as the
3: wheel spins because we got to hear something
1: <laughs> uh the only clap i want to hear is a slow one from gwen stefani and sweetie
2: <laughs> do we like oh that song no it's, no. Yeah.
1: No. <laughs> no it's garbage yeah
2: no no it's
1: garbage and i love sweetie i've, I've I, I actually um came up with a very interesting theory um, that sweetie for me is um what Dua Lipa is to most white gays. Oh. oh, I see. Because the live performances are are it's truly go girl, give us nothing, but <laughs> the but the but the music and the looks like it's all vibes.
2: Mhm.
3: I I do love it's watching there. Dua Lipa count her dance steps though, because man, she is still in the like week three of waltz class uh, <laughs> oh. in her head.
1: Can you imagine Dua Lipa in um? making the band three, Lorianne Gibson would have boom-cacked her ass out the room <laughs> in the first episode.
3: <laughs> Somehow it's endearing, though. Maybe it's just because she's so gorgeous. I don't know.
1: It is because she's so gorgeous. And the songs are great. But Yes. And and you know what? We ain't going to see Dua Lipo on Clubhouse. No.
2: What would she be talking about?
1: Because she's hot and gorgeous, right? Like, and clubhouse does her no favors
3: <laughs> no right 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 uh, so
1: i think that celebrities will eventually just stick to the instagrams and the uh, snapchats they're used to
3: that's what i let, let's stick in this space where i can just watch busy phillips plank sometimes and yeah that's that that's as confrontational as i need yeah
1: i want to see pretty people on social media i don't want to listen to ugly people
3: that's such a beautiful sentiment. Thank yeah. you, thank you.
1: Um, it's a Cleo
3: Wade poem. <laughs> it was a little rupee cower to me, but all right. No.
1: Yeah. All right. When we're back, Lewis is in jeopardy. Ooh, but down, but down, but down,
3: pound, bound, bound. That's my daily double noise.
2: <laughs>
1: Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary.
3: So my guest, not Ira's guest, not Aida's guest, just my guest, is Buzzy Cohen, who is a nine-time Jeopardy! champion. He also won the 2017 Tournament of Champions. And then, out of nowhere, he was plucked from the plebeian status of contestanthood and now is a host of Jeopardy! hosting the upcoming Tournament of Champions this coming week. I am thrilled to have him here and my first question for you normally Buzzy would be how would you ever get ready for this sort of thing except also Buzzy Cohen wrote a book called Get Ready A Champion's Guide to Preparing for the Moments That Matter. So if you didn't know how to get ready for this you're a hypocrite.
0: <laughs> That's true. No, I and I took a lot of my own advice. Um but yes, it was like, you know, the dare to be great moment arrived and I got to put a lot of my uh My stuff ready, but it was still quite hard. Just because I wrote the book doesn't mean it's easy. I just know how to do it, right? Well, also and the book (laughs) is
3: sort of like about the generalized process of getting ready. It's not like here's how you become a game show host out of nowhere.
0: Correct, correct. It's really aimed to anybody, like people who have to do a job interview, people who have to give a speech at their sister's wedding, or whatever it is, we have these moments that, you know, most of us aren't performing in some capacity like that right so for if you're an ice skater you have a coach and you learn how to do that if you're a musician or an actor there are coaches but if you're just like a person who needs to give a speech or present to your boss there aren't really coaches for that right right and so um that's kind of the audience for the book which was perfect for this because it's also the kind of thing where yes there are people who coach game show type hosts or presenters or whatever but they're not ready for Jeopardy, right? It's different like hosting the match game than hosting yeah. <laughs> Jeopardy.
3: Wow, taking shots at Alec Baldwin this early on. I'm, I'm shocked to hear it. Yeah. Uh, no, here's what interests me. When you got the call from them, were you blown away? Because although Ken... Jennings has hosted a couple of episodes as a substitute host, and there have been a number since, like Katie Couric and Aaron Rodgers, my doctor, Mehmet Oz, (laughs) etc. Were you blown away to realize you would suddenly be standing behind the lectern where Alex Trebek once was?
0: Absolutely blown away. Absolutely shocked. I did not think there was any chance in hell of me getting a shot, especially when they started announcing who these guest hosts were going to be. Katie Couric, Anderson Cooper, Aaron Rodgers. You know, these are people at the top of a very public field. And, you know, everyone's like, when are you going to get a chance to host? And I'm like, look, I would not put money on me getting a shot at this. So I had really given up on it. And And I also, there was a part of me that's like, if I'm on a list somewhere, I feel like somebody would have told me like, hey, I don't know what you're up to, but maybe like you know, lay low on game shows for a while. Not that I'm like out there auditioning, but a lot of people in the contestant pool that have been contestants are trying to go on The Chase or Millionaire or whatever the the new trivia show is. I feel like somebody would have given me a heads up about that. So it really, it came out of nowhere. I like ran through the house. I couldn't, I still kind of can't believe it. But yeah, it was... It truly is like local boy makes. It was like Bye Bye Birdie, you know, it was like Conrad Birdie was coming to my town.
3: Oh wow, we could talk about Dick Gautier some other day. What a hunk! Um, <laughs> but what's interesting is. Among game shows, Jeopardy does not really field for major personalities specifically, and in a way that is a huge departure from other game shows. If you try out for Wheel of Fortune or something, right. I say this affectionately, it's like a stick-up. The producers are like, right. more energy, like dance, you know, et cetera. Right. And Jeopardy, while they want to make sure you can you know, have a conversation with the host, it really is about playing the game. And so my question for you as somebody who has mastered the game, what do you bring that like a Katie Couric wouldn't? Do you feel like you have a specific skill set that someone like her wouldn't bring?
0: What really is important in being the host of Jeopardy is really understanding, I think, the material. Mm -hmm. Fluency with the material helps a ton because it just keeps the flow of the game going, right? You don't have to look down in front of you to see if it's right or wrong. Not that Katie Couric, I'm sure, knew a lot of it. But you also are, there's the kind of Jeopardy canon of material that people who have been on the show or trying to get on the show know very well, right? Like, I don't think Katie Couric is studying world capitals. She probably knows a lot of them, mm-hmm. but she's not going to know that Djibouti is the capital of Djibouti because how often does Djibouti come up in her line of work, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that is part of it. And the other thing is that that I, I really try to, like, hone in on is just, like, understanding the dynamics of the game, right? So when somebody hits a daily double late in the game and they're in a position to make a big bet, make a big move, knowing how to amp up and bring the gravity of that moment there without just being like, okay, you can wager up to the full amount, right? Like being able to look at it and be like, you can take the lead here, it's very late in the game, not a lot of clues left, like just seeing it and also, having a feel for what the game dynamic is, right? So having a feel for like, oh, this is a really fast paced game. This is a tight game. These players are like struggling with the material, all that stuff because of my time having lived Jeopardy for so long is really natural. And and people are really used to that because Alex really knew the dynamics of the game so well. And I think that that was also part of what people felt like in Anderson's first couple games, like they said he felt a little stilted. Mm -hmm. I think it was a combination of that like material stuff and also um, real fluency with the game dynamics. And, And the other thing, and this is a little more inside baseball, but like, as you know, as someone who's been on the show, The way Jeopardy writes clues, there's a lot of information. And then there's like the key, the clue in the clue that's telling you what they're asking.
3: Right. Yes. It's like um, doing crosswords or something. You become familiar with the language the writers use and what what you're supposed to get from a clue immediately.
0: Not every clue, but there are a lot of clues where like, hey, isn't this interesting? And here's like the part that's going to tell you how to get the answer. And the isn't this interesting is kind of hard, like doesn't necessarily help you unless you know that. Isn't that interesting, right? Right, right, right. Knowing how the clues are written so I can emphasize and make sure I'm really hitting or not hitting or really clear on the part that's important, kind of doing in a throwaway way maybe more – the not that it's filler, but the more filler stuff mm-hmm. is all, I think, very, very helpful for a –
3: host. Right. I think also something Alex was amazing at was, even though he had a very steady tone throughout the broadcast, there was also a sense of, as you basically just said, raising the stakes of the intensity of the game. I think that's something specific that the broadcasting people have been missing out on, which is like you've got to amp up certain moments. You've got right. to make this feel like it's going somewhere as opposed to just a bunch of text we're moving through.
0: That's right. That's right. And and feeling like, "Ooh, this is a tight game like blah blah blah." When, you know, especially for the Tournament of Champions, they're so good and when they're on, they're moving quick through those clues and being able to like get at that level with them, I think is something that he'd love to do like kind of getting in rhythm with the players. And I think that You know that's something that I think is harder for a broadcaster to do because they're not used. They're used to. I mean, they do interviews and stuff like that, but they're not used to this kind of exchange of verbiage.
3: Yeah. No, it's like almost musical, really. Like you're building to a crescendo of some kind. Yeah. 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 Furthermore, you just brought this up. The Tournament of Champions is that basically means you're tossed in the deep end because totally it's the hardest clues the show sees all year. In a way, I think it's the clues the question writers are most excited about, like the ones they've been sort of building to throughout the year, the ones that take three steps to figure out in Final Jeopardy as opposed to two, for example. Um, the hard Shakespeare clue or you know, right. it's less about Mark Twain and more about Eudora Welty, you know, that kind of like <laughs> right. shift right. in difficulty. Yeah, Did that provide an extra barrier where they're like, you know, accents, et cetera, you had to learn specifically for these clues?
0: Not not for me, but I did find that there were certainly some less familiar names, right? Because they're digging a little deeper, even in the foreign names. You know, it's not Beethoven. It's, you
3: know. Smetana. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Berg or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like,
0: you know, not that that's such a hard name, but the foreign names are not necessarily the, the 10, 20, 30, 50 foreign names that we're very familiar with on Jeopardy! you know, week in and week out. So certainly, but that that stuff is easy to get help on, whether it's from the internet or the writers are, are very, very helpful. For me, even more than the material, because I love the hard material, um, I really like got into it. I thought the games that they wrote were fabulous. All of these contestants played when Alex Trebrek was the host. Totally, That's what they're used to. They're used to the best of the best. And so now I don't just have to come in with great players who aren't going to do a a lot of sit and stares on tough clues but they're also expecting Alex level performance so I I but I use that to motivate me like I I loved it I mean I'm like hell yeah if you're gonna throw me in the deep end you know that's what I want it was kind of like the way I felt when I went up for my tournament of champions like I want to play the best players like I don't want an easy route to the finals like I want to play the hardest games. I want to play the hardest people. And I'm like, look, if this is my chance to host Jeopardy, I want it to be tough material, great players, high stakes. Like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want the baby pool.
3: Right, right. Something that I think is fascinating about you just knowing you personally, and I think with most trivia people, it's like this. There are certain things they know specifically all about that a show like Jeopardy! probably will never ask them? Like, I know one thing you know obsessively is the names of fake bands in movies.
0: I know a lot of them, yes. Because, well, we, we did a trivia night together, and now it's like I started rattling them off.
3: Do you have a favorite sort of, like, trivia recess of your mind that rarely gets exercised because, you know, the world as we know it can't access this level?
0: That's a great question. What would be a recess that rarely gets tapped into... Can I think about that really quickly? I don't have that I don't have
3: that ready. Yeah, sure. I'll offer one. Because I think mine would be, and I explored this once on Love It or Leave It. Like, this is something this would never be on Jeopardy, is that Leonard Malton would release a book of movie reviews every year or yeah. like add to his collection of years-long movie reviews. Mm-hmm. And whatever, I would read that growing up. I'm telling you, I have an encyclopedic knowledge of all the four-star ratings he gave every movie. Like I know every <laughs> I know Braveheart's three and a half stars. I know, like, I you, I could I I don't know why I needed to keep that. I don't know why I needed to have that in my brain, but I do. And I really love Leonard Malton. I guess. Yeah.
0: Growing up, my thing was I, so, you know, my family loved Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. It was must-see TV every night. But when I, I was a horrible sleeper as a kid, and I would stay up all night and read the encyclopedia. So I would say that, like, general knowledge is really, like, one of my weird strengths. Yeah. I think I also really like word origin and phrase origin, sort of an etymology geek mm-hmm. if you will. Even especially the ones that aren't true. <laughs> you know, like when there's like the folk etymology of why we say cold enough to freeze the balls off a brass monkey and like there's a folk reason but they're not really sure if it's the real reason or like where the the term bistro, you know, the whole like folk etymology of bistro. Go on. Well, the folk etymology is that it's from Russian the Russian word for quickly is like bistro, bistro. And so I guess after some 19th century war, there were all these Russian soldiers in Paris and they would sit there and they wanted their food really quickly. And so they would insist on it being faster. And so they started calling these types of restaurants that are sort of like a diner, right? They would call them bistros because the Russian guys would say they wanted their food quickly. And it was sort of like advertising, this is a fast restaurant.
3: Oh, I see. But, that, but that's disputed, you're saying? Disputed, yeah. Did you get to bond with the contestants in a, uh, in any particular way while you were hosting? Because when I was on the show, and when most people are on the show with Alex, Alex stays in a cavern far away, and the contestants never get to mix with them. Yeah. But obviously, you've probably met a couple of these people before. So did you get any chance to talk with them?
0: I did have a really nice time. They were all really um, re- very supportive, which I was like, don't worry about me. Like, they can edit all my stuff just, you know. I did have a a little bit of a moment of uh, joviality with them where I was like, somebody said about being like a little nervous and I was like, Hey, you know how to win Jeopardy. You've done that before. I've never done this before. So
3: (laughs) yeah. Oh, that's so charming of you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Tried to be, but they they, they were great. I mean, it was like the nicest group of contestants you could imagine truly. And I've, you know, know a ton of nice contestants. It's also weird taping during COVID and I think they all kind of bonded a little bit over that, um, but they were all really kind to each other, kind to me. It was, it was very, very nice. One of the things that I think was great was in the after show chat, I could kind of give a very informed post-mortem with them, which is kind of what you want to do a little bit in that moment. Um, and I, I always kind of remember Alex or you know, kind of picking someone to talk to, but it was nice, like I could kind of talk to all three of them, and be like, man, how about that whatever category? Or that was a tough final, and kind of like really talk through it with them in a in a meaningful way, which I think they appreciated. Whether you've won or lost, you're kind of stuck standing up there and all you want to do is move on to whatever is next. And so I kind of like gave them a reason to to still be there. So that was nice.
3: Oh, that is uh, lovely. <laughs> My last question for you is, so what's your favorite memory with Alex, if you have any? Average contestant who goes on Jeopardy gets so little time with him. So you, o- you obviously... Had nine games, a whole tournament. You went back for the All Stars tournament. Yeah. So, did you get a, any specific one-on-one time with Alex that was uh, particularly meaningful?
0: Just seeing the way that he kind of like commanded the show, especially now going back and having to kind of try to do it myself. The the lightness with which he carried the show, and like that he could be kind of like serious, but also you know made fun of himself and had fun and, and doing all of that. And you know when I would do my kind of like fake um, my SNL sort of like prodding him uh, responses in final. He loved that. I mean, like he he knew all the parody versions of himself and he had like opinions about all of them. And so I think, you know, just getting to kind of really share in that and especially I think during the TOC finals when Alan and Austin and I did our like coordinated contestant intros and then he came out and joined in with us, like that's a part of his personality that he didn't get an opportunity to show a lot on the show. And so it was always like, nice when he felt like he had license to do that. Um, but really the, my highlight Alex moment was at the after party for All Stars, my daughter came my, who was very young. She was probably like four or five at the time. And Alex Trebek is the biggest star in the world for her because we watch a lot of Jeopardy in our house. Um, so she saw him and she was like so excited to see him and like ran up to him and like gave him a big hug and he gave her a big hug back. She just had this great moment with him. It was so sweet.
3: One time, when I was standing there on stage during a commercial, he yeah. said to me, because um, I was introduced as a journalist and comic, and he, and he leans in and he goes, where do you perform? Like he was going to go out and see me that night? And it was like, <laughs> I was like, girl, you're not coming to West Hollywood. I don't see that. Yeah. I, but uh, it, was, it was really uh, cool of him. And uh, it feels like every time he looked at you or whatever, you were getting a little bit of insight about his strange unknowable personality. So I feel Yeah. You know,
0: there were a lot of strands in his mind. It, what 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 really shocked me, because <laughs> I really went and studied like how he hosted is how little he would do. Yeah. You know, like you would I watch and there are multiple times where someone would hit a daily double and he wouldn't say anything. Right. He would just wait for them to wager. That's like an incredible amount of restraint for a television host there are like eight moments in jeopardy when the host gets to say something off script, maybe he'd be like, you know, it's like, it's the daily
3: double. Right. And just let them wager. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and like he, and even
0: in his, his like, you know, right. Good. Very like matter of fact um, on the correct responses, the corrections he, or when people would get something wrong, you know, he wouldn't overdo it with like, Oh, should have known that one. He was just like, we're looking for blah, blah, blah. Pick again. Like, because of that, when you did get that glimpse that you're talking about of, like, something that he liked about a clue or something that he thought was funny, it felt like you really earned it. Like, it was so much more. Right. Um, I think that that's maybe a little bit of what you're getting at, maybe.
3: Absolutely. Well, Buzzy, <laughs> thank you for being with us. And also, I just want to say, again, this is a extremely dear man who— In addition to being what I'm sure will be a great game show host, he's just somebody who messages me from time to time with information about Roberta Flack or something. And I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks again, Buzzy. Thank you so much for having me. Of course.
1: Billionaire troll and part-time Martian Elon Musk stopped by 30 Rock to pretend he didn't force workers back to Tesla factories in the middle of a pandemic. People were very upset that the non-performer was invited onto Saturday Night Live at all, and some people just didn't give a shit. But... What do we think, y'all?
2: Boo, bitch. Yeah, I I mean, I I, I hated it.
1: Boo, bitch is it.
2: I don't know about you guys, but I like my billionaires to be not frontward facing people. I also like them non-existent. The only thing that proves to me that you exist is showing your face and hosting a television show. Uh, It was horrible. It was uncomfortable the whole time. I don't see why he was on the show. I don't think billionaires should be inducted into the world of celebrity, even the ones that have permeated into pop culture because they are married to Grimes.
3: What's interesting is what he delivered is exactly what I expected. I mean, I felt like the entire anticipation up to this moment... And by the way, there was intense anticipation. I feel like it's what people were talking about for the past Mm -hmm. two weeks. But he really gave you a kind of stilted, too-many-silences-filled monologue. And then, okay, game characterizations during the sketches. But, I mean, it was never hilarious. I mean, again, I don't see a need for him to be funny... And every time I did almost laugh at something he did, I felt terrible because I'm not forgetting what he has done to these workers. And I'm not forgetting Mm -hmm. his misinformation about COVID, et cetera. That said, the monologue was so long. And he brought out his mom and it got even longer.
1: Yeah. And then there's also his jokes about, you know, sort of like, um, I'm trying to save the world, you know, and send us to space and send us to Mars and like rocket ships. And I'm like, oh, okay, bitch. I mean, I guess. But once again, this is this is even different than the Trump thing, you know, Um, them having Trump on. This is just the idea that we shouldn't be, as you said, making billionaire celebrities. We talked about this last week when I talked about that VH1 show um, that had Jeffrey Epstein on it. Right. You know, where it's just treating him like he was a cool dude. This is, like, making him personable in the sort of way that, like, we saw happen with Mark Zuckerberg, you know, and it's like, how often are we going to keep going back to this well and then be marched into hell by a billionaire who really doesn't give a fuck about the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or humanity.
3: One thing that did interest me, though, during the monologue, he brought up having Asperger's. Now, some would argue he did that to immediately inspire sympathy among the audience and, again, make himself relatable, as you just said.
1: If I were a cynical person, I would say that's absolutely what he did. Right. And I am a cynical person.
3: (laughs) And I am a girl, that's me. (laughs) The (laughs) math works out. Um, But then, it's so rare that a celebrity has ever talked about being on the spectrum. I, I just don't remember many examples of that. And then someone told me that a year ago, I did not hear this. Chris Rock came out as having a nonverbal learning disorder. I was totally unaware of this. Did you know this?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was immediately swept under the rug because when it came out, it was it was, you know, really popularized in autism communities, which I tend to frequent online because my brother was nonverbal autistic and I'm still um interested in that world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chris Rock came out with having the nonverbal learning disorder that he'd been coping with since he was a child. And, you know, people with that tend to be higher functioning but have, like, a really difficult time just understanding nonverbal signs. Clearly didn't affect his career in a way. If anything, I think it really helped him. <laughs> the level of what it takes to be a stand-up comedian I think sometimes might be associated with learning disorders. I will speak I guess from yeah. my own
3: experience. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, other than that, like, I'm, uh, I'm obsessed with this game show... Uh, the chase that there's now a version of here with Ken Jennings, but one of the mm. trivia experts in the UK, Anne Haggerty, who is the best, she she her like her um, intimidating trivia master name is the governess. Look her up. Um, she came out as being on the spectrum uh, a year or two ago, but I, I'm just surprised that hasn't happened more often because it feels to me like. Just so many people are on the spectrum in certain ways. Now, if you read a list of what qualifies you to be on the spectrum, you might immediately think to yourself, well, I'm half of this list or whatever, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so here's my question, though. Aren't we all on the spectrum? That's what I'm saying. Isn't maybe. that why it's yeah. called a spectrum?
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wow. The Oprah-Meghan Markham interview has really affected
2: your cadence for the better, for the better. <laughs> for the better. <laughs> And I you know, I just uh, realizing now as I was reading up on it. First of all, yes, Lewis, I do think you're correct. We are all on the spectrum in varying degrees and like just the context. That was Iris'
3: proposition, not mine.
1: But yes, go ahead.
2: Oh <laughs> that was
1: my spectrumation proclamation.
2: <laughs> <laughs> For Elon Musk to say he was the first person with Asperger's to host SNL, a lot of people were coming up to say no in two thousand and three. Dan Aykroyd, who was an actor and cast member of the show, hosted and has autism. No. Now, I need to look yeah. that
3: up. I'm typing yeah. uh, as I host keep it. Mm-hmm. Here we go.
2: Along with Susan Boyle and Tim Burton and other people who have come out. As famously autistic.
3: Wow. I, I am like an obsessive encyclopedic knower of the early days of SNL. And I am sitting here looking at a story that says Dan Aykroyd says being on the spectrum, help him make Ghostbusters.
2: I am uneducated.
1: I am uneducated. Aida, you are you are breaking the computer this week. It's yeah.
2: time. It's time. Elon, step over. Aida to the moon.
3: No excuse for Dan Aykroyd being Oscar nominated for Driving Miss Daisy. But now I am more interested in
1: learning more about Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah i didn't watch beyond the monologue though i have, I have no other constructive thoughts on this man's snl appearance
3: well i okay there's there was one specific sketch where he played wario and it was a courtroom sketch about making fun of wario and killing mario and like they all use the it's a me mario accent a thousand times it was kind of cute that said a sketch based entirely around the characterizations in a video game, even if the video game, this version of Mario, goes back to the 90s, when I watch sketches like this on SNL, I'm like, half of the people watching must have no idea what is going on here. <laughs> it's so interesting that like mm-hmm. SNL has to do this thing where it's both niche and reaching everyone at the same time. So it's kind of for everybody and for nobody.
2: Yeah, I think even specifically, I, there's another sketch that was called Gen Z Hospital that I watched. It was the one that I tried to get through because there was a lot of uproar around it as far as cultural appropriation. And, you know, just the standard way that well, all the white people will use uh, AAVE and just call it like youth talk. Mm. I
1: did not see this, but let me guess. It involved Gen Z doctors saying <laughs> stuff like... It's the cancer for me.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> I, I'm guessing that because every time SNL lately does like a youth culture sketch or makes fun of like an internet thing, it's something that I've seen on TikTok for months.
2: Hmm. Exactly. It's like Kate McKinnon in a beanie and a striped polo. And she's like a looks like a TikTok hype house star. And when her mom dies, she's like, oh, my God, you're capping. <laughs> it's exactly that. You're 100% correct.
1: It's like the New York Times writing about trends and slang at this totally. point, mm-hmm. right? You know, whenever Mm -hmm. SNL does a thing like that, it's like, okay, we've already seen this.
2: Yeah,
3: But yes, it's that weird balance of it's for people who are already extremely well acquainted with the verbiage or lingo that they're talking about and then kind of trying to explain it to everybody else. Mm -hmm. But there's so much less value in that because they don't have a reason to really, in particular, want to understand it. They live in their own universe, too. So it's so interesting to me what SNL has to do and what, like, the median viewer is.
2: I truly feel for them.
1: They think that they are Marion Williamson explaining A Course in Miracles through her landmark book, A Return to Love, but they are not.
2: <laughs> Girl, what? Wow. You, I, we, were, yes? I felt like, we
3: were having a rational conversation, and then you <laughs> took a jump through off a window... Through the deep end.
2: (laughs) 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 I miss Marianne. She should host the Clubhouse Room. I know. It's a very good book. I started reading it.
3: Marianne Williamson. I feel like there's a wave of new interest in her. And I've certainly seen on Twitter... Apparently the woman is obsessed with birds and we'll just tweet a bird every once in a while and everyone's like, oh, see, she's a sweet lady. She loves birds. Meanwhile, to me, she seems like a woman who was asked
1: to leave a West Elm for being weird. (laughs) Those two things are not incongruous.
2: That's true, right? (laughs) Ma'am, stop rubbing the vases to your face and leave (laughs) the West Elm. (laughs) They're not crystals.
1: All I'm hearing is she should host SNL and we should bring back Tracy Morgan to do a Brian Fellow sketch with her about birds.
3: That would be pretty great. Uh, mm. really Marion Williamson to me feels like a Madeline Kahn character that sense of like I am I'm an upper crust woman who is filled with a weird energy and maybe I'm about to lose it and you know
2: <laughs> every sentence is a wind up.
1: Cast the Marion Williamson
2: biopic. right now.
1: Uh, Well, I guess
3: Madeline's not with us. So uh, it would have to be...
1: Who is Madeline Kahn-esque Who has that like
3: dark... Well, you know who is kind of Madeline Kahn-esque in terms of characters like that? Chloe Feynman has that kind of, I have a general spookiness about the way I'm saying these lines. So, but she's a little young.
1: Remember when they found out she was a Scientologist? Now, okay, that's... I know she
3: took Scientology classes. Are we sure she's an (laughs) active Scientologist?
2: (laughs) I don't
1: know. I feel like when you're raised up in the Scientology, like that's like saying that like I'm a Baptist. Mm. I was baptized, but you know, I wasn't with Jesus shooting in the gym. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you weren't there. You weren't doing the work.
3: That's a good, good question though, because I do feel like we will get more representations of Marianne Williamson in, in the future. Mm-hmm. Not that I am rooting for that.
1: You know what? Rose Byrne.
3: Totally great answer. Mm. Great answer. Mm. Wow. By the way, we all know that casting is the gay superpower, right? I've talked about this before. Every gay man (laughs) is born with the ability to be like, you know what Rosamund Pike needs to do right now? Play Martina Navratilova in a biopic. Like, everybody can do that.
1: Mm. But speaking of Scientologists, my Scientology king, Tom Cruise, knew it. Oh, my God, right. Did, did, did turn in three of his Golden Globes (gasps) this week. no. The Golden Globes are
3: canceled next year officially because... Everybody hates the HFPA, and people like Scarlett Johansson have talked about how the HFPA routinely just subject her to like horrible and sexist questions. More and more is coming out about the grossness.
1: Wasn't it The Globes where um, Isaac Mizrahi grabs Scarlett's breasts?
3: News to me, Uh, that was certainly not in his documentary Unzipped, which I watched once upon a time. Um, Tom Cruise being the first to turn in his Golden Globes, who knew he would be morally upright about anything? And by the way, one of the few times the Golden Globes did something worthwhile was giving him a Golden Globe for Magnolia. They were right about that.
1: Mm. Right. Actually, would say I'm not shocked because I recently went on a deep dive of his Oprah interviews, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems like the exact kind of thing his brain would tell him he has to do Because he was asked about the kids he, like, um, adopted, you know, and, like, raising them by Oprah once. And, like, he went on this weird, like, white person speech about how, you know, like, we're all human and I'm raising them as human and race. I don't see that. And, like, it's very weird. And I would hope that I would – I'm grateful I was not adopted by a white person and taught that. Um, But you could see his brain going, this is wrong. Return these. But also – to point out, uh, our friend um, Sam Greisman, who is um, Sally Field's son, has told us these the gloves fall apart.
3: Oh, as in physically?
1: Like, like, the, like the actual statues like are just like
2: unsound,
1: shoddy. <laughs> so, so also it's like I could imagine him being like, I don't need these gloves; they're, they're 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 already <laughs> falling apart in my trophy case.
3: Oh, wow! Well, I love this theory that they just yeah. they're not cute enough; <laughs> they're not the goods. Meanwhile. Tom does not have an Oscar, so you'd think he would keep them like as sort of an omen of an Oscar to come, but
1: I think he'll get one.
3: Really? Yeah. He it would need to be like an uncut gems like Departure. Mm-hmm. And that why by the way is a memorable snub. I'm a little bit mad over that Adam Sandler situation, but you're right he is po- it's the way that like ultimately Brad Pitt getting one was inevitable like Mm -hmm. you give people enough chances that are high profile they'll find something great to
1: do I think it'll be like an older like probably even in like 15 years or something like an older Tom Cruise will turn in a performance that will Mm. get him an Oscar
3: yeah that does speak to me I like this theory Mm. not that I like him but
1: I like this theory yeah you you know my love for him is complicated yeah I don't have a street it's complicated (laughs) (laughs) that movie is cute <laughs> John Krasinski's best. Well, when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It, Aida. I am girl. I am sensing a disturbance <laughs> in the force.
2: Beep, boop, beep, boop, boop. I feel like celebrities lay up at night and they go, What does the world not need to see from me? What does the world <laughs> what is something that would not add to the cultural conversation? I need to make that television show right this fucking moment. And our girl Demi Lovato left the studio for a moment. To go to the TV studio
1: mm, mm. to
2: pitch and sell a show called Unidentified with Demi Lovato. Is she talking about singing, music, composition, body issues, eating disorders? No. She's talking about fucking aliens. No. Demi Lovato is doing an investigative, non-scripted show called Unidentified with Demi Lovato where she investigates UFOs because she is an avid believer and she's sick of having to convince her friends at cocktail parties. She now wants hundreds of thousands of dollars invested into her so she can make a television show about it. What the fuck? <laughs> we don't need this. Demi, I don't need this from you. I don't need you to host a television show. I don't need to know about what your beliefs are. I, in general, first of all. And the tinfoil hat era is just, it does not intrigue me. It doesn't intrigue me. Let's, just, let's skip past it. Mm.
3: This actually makes me more sympathetic to Zodiac people. Like, I, I'd rather just talk about that than the aliens universe. But what does investigate mean? Like, somebody says, oh, I saw a flying saucer, and she goes, wow. And
2: she goes, oh, girl. <laughs> Grabs her guitar and writes a about it right
1: there <laughs> in theory i like her hosting some sort of like unsolved mystery show because i mean imagine the memes we'll get from it but this about aliens it's She's doing a lot lately. Right.
2: Girl, it's not a Hulu, HBO Max, or Netflix. It's a Peacock. So I expect so little. Oh. (laughs) I expect so little.
3: That said, I I do love Girls 5 Eva. So Peacock has gone up in my estimation recently.
1: Yeah. That and Saved by the Bell.
2: Mm, Okay. We'll talk about that because that seems good. Yeah. I like Girls 5
3: Eva better than Saved by the Bell. I think it's because I think the actors are slightly better at doing that whip smart dialogue that whip smart crazy person dialogue that said mm. if they're going to invest in demi lovato and her trench coat and magnifying glass i am worried
2: all right wait pause for a second pause this show is called girls five ever mm-hmm. yes <laughs> this got this got tina o'fay hands all over it doesn't, it doesn't it i knew it i knew it use something else use a what girls girl perpetuated. is
1: it long enough <laughs>
2: you're right Oh, there's five women on the cast i'm assuming but the ever why 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 them and white people in their relationship with r's and black people they need to figure it out (laughs) the letter r white people brought to you by the letter r Leave us alone.
1: I do want to say, Renee Ellis Goldsberry is amazing in it.
3: Yes. Uh, and we love her. It looks cute. Ira and I saw Hamilton when she was in the cast. And truly, you never recover from how insane and asthmatic that singing of that particular song is. So it's awesome to see her uh, thriving on the show. That said, with Girls Five Eva, <laughs> it always, th- this kind of dialogue spoken this way reminds you of how amazing. Tina Fey, Alec Baldwin, and Jane Krakowski were with the dialogue on 30 Rock and how they really made it sound like they were coming up with this stuff off the top of their head. And these actors, while funny, because the jokes are so funny, Mm -hmm. they don't achieve the same thing of, I'm really thinking of this stuff right now. There's like a, a slight difference between being an expert at this kind of dialogue and merely very good. And I wish they could nail it a little bit more like I kind of miss Tina Fey on this show and, and and it's Sarah Bareilles instead
2: I think we just need to kill the lead actor comedic actress to production mogul pipeline because it's like we liked you because of what you were doing not necessarily because of who you thought could also be doing what you're doing
3: mm-hmm. right right, <laughs> <makes> right.
2: <laughs> yeah I, again I speak as somebody who just cast in an Issa Rae show <laughs> so <laughs> 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 failure just expect failure
1: <laughs> Lewis, what is your keep it this week? All right, I don't mean to be a downer. Yes you do. But this Yes you do. Right. You're al- you're always a downer.
3: <laughs> okay, well, I mean I'm this is this one's going to suck. Uh, the West End of London is putting on a production of Cabaret. Nothing is unusual about that. Who's playing Sally Bowles The great Jesse Buckley, who we loved in I'm thinking of ending things. Mm-hmm. And that movie where Mary Steenburgen wrote a song because she had a weird stroke or something that made her th- hear music suddenly. Anyway. Oh,
1: see his music.
3: Th- not, that's not it. But <laughs> who was playing the MC in this version of Cabaret, a role famously uh, Joel Gray won an Oscar for, Alan Cummings won a, a Tony for, queer icon Eddie Redmayne. Mm-mm. Guys, how does he keep scoring these? We put him in the Danish girl, and now he gets to do this. Is it that he looks a little bit like Amelia Earhart, and so we just think he can do queer <laughs> anything? I don't know. Well, I wish someone would
1: stick him in a plane already. Stop it. <laughs> Let's head Stop to the it. Pacific.
2: <laughs> Between that and Trial of the Chicago 7, I think that's where you know things have tipped for me. I don't want to see his face again.
3: It took me until the Trial of the Chicago 7 where I thought he gave a truly poor performance as Tom Hayden, where it was all shrugs and weird posturing the entire time Mm. to be like, I think maybe we were wrong about this person because theory of everything. All right, fine. It's a biopic role. We give Oscars to that. Whatever (laughs) Jupiter ascending. He was off the chain bizarre on accident. Funny. I believe on accident. And now we're allowing him to take probably the greatest supporting role in theater. And I just feel like, even though he's a Tony winner for a play, some rad gay guy should be doing this. Sorry. It it just is a gay role to me. It's only gay. And I wish um, the Danish man, (laughs) Eddie Redmayne, weren't doing it.
2: Lewis is still fresh off getting rejected.
1: As you know, it's the West End. Things are are a bit crazy over there.
3: (laughs) And you're the West End of what asylum right now? Okay.
1: (laughs) Uh, You know Eddie Redbait has been the bait of my existence as long as we've done this show.
3: Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Seems nice. It's not that I hate him personally. It's just something about the – his idea of quirkiness is so cloying to me.
2: Look, I'm sorry. I am unswayed in this conversation because do you hear the people saying – Came out when I was at peak puberty and it I unfortunately imprinted on on this man. And I can't you mm. can't undo that. And I'm so sorry. And I don't like that this is my genetic code now, but he will always have a special place in my heart.
1: Mm. <laughs> mm. Okay, Aida. Cool. <laughs> That's exactly what that is.
2: Guys, he's kind he's kind of cute. He's kind <laughs> of cute.
3: No I would actually describe him as adorable and and, and not making up his weird like he, he's just a living gulp of a man. He's like, mm? before he says anything.
1: I will say that I actually did really like him in Fantastic Beasts and Weren't to Find Them. But I refuse to see any of those other movies because of Johnny Depp and, um, you know, the transphobe.
3: Right. Mm. I was never into the Potter universe. I, I don't think kids should be dressed as witches. I'm a Christian.
1: Mm. That's why you hate Hocus Pocus.
3: Right. Oh, well, it's an abomination in many ways. That, too.
1: My keep it goes to the Big Shot with Bethany, which is currently on HBO Max. And as entertaining as it is, it is also one of the most frightening things I've ever had to watch. In the context of a reality show, it's kind of more frightening than The Apprentice. You know, she's been on the show. You've seen, girl, yeah. you've heard, you've heard her manic energy. It's really just a proliferation of boss culture in that Scott Rudin sort of way. Like, she's terrorizing these people. Uh, You're (laughs) supposed to be rooting for her.
3: Do you know what is annoying to me as a non-Housewives watcher is that you still have to stay up to date on which Housewives you're supposed to not really like. Mm. And... Like, with someone like Bethany, I feel like once upon a time, she was, like, the herald angel of the show. Like, the one mm-hmm. everybody, like, like the, the Greek chorus of the show, the funny one, et cetera. Yeah. And now it's, like, the opposite of that. Like, she's the most out of touch or something. And I'm never clear on where I'm supposed to stand on these people and routinely feel wrong. Mm. So I don't know where I'm supposed to be with Bethany.
1: Getting back to the big shot, did you ever watch the Jenna Lyons show on HBO Max? No. Uh, well, that was a show where she was looking for someone to work for her company. And oh, right. HBO I know Max, what you're talking
3: about. Mm-hmm.
1: HBO Max sort of has this thing, that, and I'm enjoying the shows, but they sort of have this thing with competition shows where you don't know what's a competition show in a weird way, and it sort of finds itself. Mm. The first Jenna Lyons episode had three people like who were looking to work for her, and then she like picks one of the people based on like a design challenge. And then the next episode is a different group of people, and then at the end, like, all those people that she picked melded together and then were competing against each other. And on Bethany, ten contestants show up in like the first episode um, to her house for a cocktail party. And she has her employees spy on them as a sort of job interview process. And then she fires five of them on the spot.
3: Great. Employment should not work this way. I'm <laughs> frightened. Yeah.
1: It's, it's just a lot of her, you know, saying things like, oh, why is this woman wearing a crop top to a job interviewer? Why would you swear in a job interview with me? And she's sort of a terrorist. Um and I would only recommend it if you can handle that much anxiety. She's a woman who sort of built her brand up as this underdog and now has you see what happens when how we um push up, you know, the underdog entrepreneur um like hustler, no bullshit sort of um mentality and then once you push that into fame and money how that then can turn around and become evil. As Shakespeare said, absolute power corrupts absolutely on a TV show spun off from The Real Housewives of New York.
3: (laughs) I've seen the film The Aviator. I'm familiar with this uh, trend.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, she also makes the contestants walk barefoot over flashbulbs like Gwen Stefani did. Great.
2: Well, that's how I prepare for my job interviews. That's how I got this one. (laughs) <laughs> so, still healing Yeah,
1: that that uh, that unaired reality show um, Sorry you'll never see the footage, guys But Aida did win Thank And you. I did make her eat, like, bugs and crickets and snakes to do so
3: Oh no, we're getting Another, back into Joe Rogan show. culture Yeah
1: <laughs> Anyway, I'm, I'm not saying yet you shouldn't watch it Because if you're a Real Housewives fan It is sort of interesting to watch how she has gone from, you know Um The Thane of Cawdor to becoming the murderer at the end of Macbeth. But do whatever you want with it. Also, as a side note, I can't even get into all the stuff going on with Real Housewives of Atlanta right now. And Portia Williams marrying the husband of one of her former castmates. But I just want to say that I have not been a fan of Portia this entire season. This is messy. And she really lost me when she spent the entire season talking about Black Lives Matter and then during the reunion episode started telling Marlo Hampton she should go to prison and making fun of her being a felon. I think Portia's phony. I think the whole thing is an act. And now her fans can realize that and support the real queen of Real Housewives of Atlanta, Kenya Moore. All right. That's our episode. Uh, Thank you to Buzzy Cohen for being here. And to Lewis for, you know, being the frost this week to Nixon.
3: Yes, that's exactly how I felt.
2: Oh, okay, I understand. I was like, comma, Robert. (laughs) I have to listen to this interview. (laughs) Was it that poetic?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Caroline Reston and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. I think I've heard of him. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Stay safe. Be blessed. God loves you. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.